the uh, brother of Moses, Aaron, and, and we talked about the priestly covenant. And we talked about how God would establish this succession of priests, right, with Jesus as the high priest, ultimately. And that this would be the way that God would uh, create care uh, for God's children uh, uh, in Israel. Now, this week, we're going to move about 500 years ahead of that, and we're going to be looking at the Davidic dynasty, the dynasty of King David. And uh, it is out of that dynasty that we get today's covenant, which is the Davidic covenant. And uh, we're going to discuss today the importance of sovereignty. Sovereignty, very royal-sounding word. Uh, David, of course, is from the tribe of Judah. And you may uh, know that David replaces who? Saul, right? Saul. Uh, but more than that, David's kingship is ultimately going to unify the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom in a way that has never been unified before. And so this is going to be a really, really important discussion today because it consolidates the seats of power, both in the political realm and in the religious realm. Now, how many kings can say that they've successfully done that? <laughs> now, the promise that we're going to talk about is, a, is definitely a covenant of sovereignty. But let me remind you that so far, leading up to this Davidic dynasty, uh, Israel's record with leadership uh, is not so great. Up to this point, uh, we've seen this time where God has put some leaders that are kind of uh, provisional leaders. They're called judges over the, um, the people of Israel. And so, uh, unfortunately, there's also this pattern that was developed through these, these judges, these different judges that God uh, puts over Israel. And, and after Joshua and Caleb uh, lead the Israelites into the promised land... The tribes of Israel start conquering and conquesting uh, all of the southern territories. And so this is important because God gives them a commandment. And God says, not only do I want you to conquer them, wipe them clean. Wipe the slates clean. The inhabitants gone. The, their, their cattle gone. Everything. But they, that doesn't happen. That does not happen. God states, though, that if they don't do this, that there's these remaining inhabitants. If they leave any remaining, there will be, they will be actual barriers for the people of Israel to enjoy this new uh, promised land in Canaan. Now, generations passed, and these new Israelites that are coming, the young Israelites, uh, they turn away from God, too. I know that's a surprise based on everything that we've talked about with Israelites, right? But this time, they intermarry with the Canaanites. So they not only do not wipe them out, they intermarry with them. And then they start worshiping their local gods, the little G kind of gods. Now, these are, these are uh, often like carved idols, right? So like a man with bird wings or lady with cow. I mean, just different kinds of things. Uh, these little gods. And so uh, this in infuriates God. And God threatens to abandon them because of the disobedience now of the youth. So there is a, a consequence for this during this time. So God starts uh, selecting these judges to lead 
over them to act as these provisional rulers. And uh, throughout the stories of these judges, uh, you're going to see this pattern of behavior follow. Now, I'm not going to have time to go into them all, but I'll tell you this. Here's the pattern. The people of Israel fall into evil. They do evil stuff. God sends a judge and appoints kind of this provisional leader over them. And then once the judge dies, Israel goes on to do even more greater evil. (laughs) That's the pattern, and it's going to play out over and over and over. You can read this in a a very appropriately titled book called Judges, and you're going to hear the stories of like Ehud, and you're going to hear the stories about uh, Deborah and about Gideon and your most strongman Samson. Those are the judges. I'm not going to get into them all, but they are incredible stories, and you should take the time to read them. But what you need to know about uh, that for today is that it repeats, this pattern repeats itself until finally Israel finds itself without a judge. At which point, believe it or not, I know this is going to shock you, but Israelites get even more corrupt. (laughs) It really is sad. In fact, their evil is so bad And then they become so corrupt that one of the 12 tribes of Israel almost gets decimated off of the entire planet. That's how bad the corruption gets. So not only did the Israelites then have to contend with the consequences from their idolatry and from their wickedness, now they're going to have to do it without a leader. Now it is important that uh, we remember that the Israelites did not do so good with the judges. So they ask God, they beg God, please give us a king. Give us a king. They want an earthly ruler. And God does. But they have their blinders on. And so they never saw what was coming in a king. So one of the first kings is Saul. Saul is one of the first kings, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin, the one that was almost wiped out. Saul was from that tribe. And Saul began his reign with this dazzling military victory. If you're going to have a king, you're going to need a great military victory, right? So a great military victory over the Ammonites. And it was impressive, And it makes God very happy, except for the fact that at the very end of this, you remember when when they were supposed to wipe the slate clean and wipe them all out, including all their cattle and all their stuff? Well, Saul decides, well, I'm going to wipe them out and stuff, but I'm going to, like, leave some of the cattle and take some of that. And, oh, hey, these lamps look nice. And some of this gold stuff is cool. I'll probably sock that in the bank. So Saul disobeys God. Well, we know that this never turns out well in the Old Testament, right? When, when there's disobedience, uh, it, God gets really, really infuriated. And so the writer of, of uh, 1 Samuel gets to the heart of God's uh, um, anger over this and writes this. This is 1 Samuel uh, 15.10. I'm sorry I ever made Saul king. He's turned his back on me. He refuses to do What I tell him. Now you know what happens when we turn our back on God. Things get tough for Saul. And and 
Saul, in his story, becomes like this stark, raving, mad guy, right? Now, for all who are theater nerds, if you're a theater nerd, just own it. Come on. We know you. Thank you. Honesty. You're in church, people. You better be honest. Now, I want you to think Macbeth here, right? Saul goes stark raving mad, right? He's paranoid. He's crazy. He, 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 he starts trying to do stuff that, that, that's really against what God wants. And it all happens in the context of his successor developing, right? This David. So David is this very unlikely king because you know where he starts out? Little shepherd boy. So here's David. Oh my gosh, he's sitting out in the, in the field and, and, and David is the youngest of eight, right? So he's a little, little, little baby brother. I'm a baby brother in my family and so I can feel for David here. But he's sitting out and he's sitting out under the willow trees and he's playing his little harp singing beautiful songs. I'm a singer. I'm a musician. I like, I, like, I like David, but he's just like, you know, not a care in the world. He's got his little flock of sheep, and he's singing songs to God, and God's drinking that in, right? Loving this praise coming from this, this little boy's heart, this little shepherd boy. How does this little shepherd boy become a king? So God in the first act of grace that I want to describe to you in this story, takes and cares for the people of Israel by promoting this little shepherd boy in like this mind-blowing epic episode. So there's this Philistine dude, and he's huge. Now, I'm 6'4", but this guy's like way up there. His name is Goliath, and he has every single person in Israel shaking in their boots, right? And here's this kid, this little shepherd boy who plays his harp under the willows. And God puts it on his heart to dress up in this, like, oversized armor and wander out there and face this Goliath dude in this, like, smackdown with a slingshot. Can you imagine I'm sitting there thinking about my boy Caleb with the slingshot. And just the thought of it scares me. But God rests the future king of Israel with this little dude with misfitting armor against a giant Philistine that has everybody scared. And the kid pulls back a slingshot and, and the giant falls. And then we don't talk about this, but then he goes over and cuts his head off. Like, this is a, like a serious, epic thing. But what's interesting about that is it's like this supernatural way of God using the low to bring down the high. It happens, stories of God. God uses David over the following years. David amasses armies right? And uses David to do the original thing that God told them to do, which was to drive out the Jebusites. And David does it successfully, quite well, I might add. And so he not only conquers the Jebusites, but then David unseats Saul on the throne. And all of a sudden, the war between the north and the south 
comes to an end. There's no civil war within the Israel anymore. And so David is ushered onto Saul's throne. And then David does something brilliant, smart. He has the Ark of the Covenant (laughs) with the mercy seat on it, the one that's been in the temple wandering around, brought to Jerusalem. And let me tell you, that is significant. That is what's going to really establish this pattern that we're going to talk about of God's sovereignty. Our scripture this morning picks up as David is having a conversation. Now, David's kind of in the White House now, except it's called the palace, right? And it's all made of cedar, and it's this beautiful place. And by the way, David's even named Zion, the city of David, (laughs) Right, But David's now thinking, after all of that goes down, that he is now going to figure out how he can honor God. And so we're going to look at 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to be starting in verses 1 through 7. Will you stand as we read this, please? I'll be reading from the message version. This is 2 Samuel 1 through 7. Before long, the king made himself at home, and God gave him peace from all his enemies. The one day King David said to Nathan, the prophet, hey, look at this. Here I am, comfortable in a luxurious house of cedar. And the chest of God sits in a plain tent. Nathan told the king, whatever is on your heart, go and do it. God is with you. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is God's word on the matter. You're going to build a house for me to live in? Why? I haven't lived in a house from the time I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt till now. And that time I've moved about with nothing but a tent. And in all my travels with Israel, did I ever say to any of the leaders I commanded to shepherd Israel, why haven't you built me a house out of cedar? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we've learned that you are always extending grace when you're extending covenant. And so help us to see it. Thank you for the grace that you've extended already. Thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself in this. Continue to do so in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now listen to this. There's this second really uh, revealing of grace here in this moment. A second revealing of grace. And you know what it is? It is an unprecedented, unprecedented peace. Somebody say unprecedented peace. How many of you could like use some unprecedented peace right now? Oh my gosh, you guys are lying to me this morning. There have got to be more of you. How many of you could use some unprecedented peace? Yes, okay. Now, David and Israel had been at war since the moment that they stepped foot into the promised land. They had been at war. And, 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 and let me tell you, if, if the war had not been playing out on the battlefield of the promised land, these children of Israel have had to endure, then it was playing out in the hearts of them as we read about the idolatry and we read about all of the ways that they fell. But the word of God says that that David was given peace from all of his enemies. Can you imagine 
All they had known for hundreds of years was war and war and war and war. And now all of a sudden, this great moment of unprecedented peace. Everyone take a big deep breath and inhale. And then exhale. That was just a microcosm of what it must have felt like to have this window of peace. Israel had suffered greatly. They had been divided into two kingdoms. And for what seemed like forever, there was political failure and people failure and and disobedience and idolatry and death and death and death and more death. They were tired from all the brokenness. Man, I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel that way about now. Is anybody like that? You ever feel just tired of all the brokenness? Perhaps God is using these young people like God used that little shepherd boy to usher in a time of unprecedented peace from all of the enemies that there was in life. Now David... He has this thought to do something nice for God in response to this promotion in life that he's been given. I have a little check in my own spirit about the fact that he built himself a palace and then named the city after himself and then thought about doing something nice for God. But God appreciates David's heart. And I'm going to tell you how I know it. It's because later his son, David's son, Solomon, who would actually build a temple for God, wrote this about David. It comes from 1 Kings 8, 18 and 19. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple honoring the name of God, the God of Israel. But God told him, it was good that you wanted to build a temple in my honor, most commendable, but you are not the one to do it. Your son will build it to honor my name. Now, (laughs) I kind of envision this like God, with God's arm around David, going, that's a nice thought. That's a nice thought, son. God pats David on the back gently, says, that's a beautiful thing on your heart. I really appreciate it. All the while thinking, (laughs) it's much more likely, David, that I will buy you a house than you'll build me one. (laughs) Every daddy probably feels sad about their kid. But God doesn't just give David the keys to the palace. Here comes more grace. You ready for it? God God gives Nathan, David's trusted advisor, this word as the scripture continues in 2 Samuel 7. This is 8 through 16. So here is what you are to tell my servant David. The God of the angel armies has this word for you. I took you from the pastor, tagging along after sheep, and made you prince over my people, Israel. I was with you everywhere you went and mowed your enemies down before you. Now, who mowed down the enemies? Oh, interesting. Now I'm making you famous. Who makes David famous? To be ranked with the great names on earth. Who are we still talking about today? (laughs) David. And I'm going to set aside a place for my people, Israel, and plant them there. So they'll have their own home and not be knocked around anymore. 
nor will evil men afflict you as they always have, even during the days I set judges over my people Israel. Finally, I'm going to give you peace from all your enemies. And then here it comes. Here comes the grace. Furthermore, God has this message for you. God himself will build you a house when your life is complete and you're buried with your ancestors. Then I'll raise up your child, your own flesh and blood to succeed you. And I'm firmly establish his rule. He will build a house to honor me and I will guarantee his kingdom's rule permanently. I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him in the usual ways the pitfalls, the obstacles of this mortal life. But I'll never, when, how much, I'll never remove my gracious love for him as I removed it from Saul who preceded you and whom I certainly did remove. Your family and your kingdom are permanently secured. I'm keeping my eye on them and your royal throne will always be there. Solid rock. Here's the third grace. David sees God's sovereign rule established for all of Israel. The Davidic dynasty is a lethal blow to the enemies of God. The Israelites would yet again see something very unprecedented happen. You know, they saw that, that when Aaron went up the mountain and then came down. And it was Eleazar. That was unprecedented. This is another unprecedented thing that they've seen. Completely unusual. Remember, they've seen a lot of unusual things. They were delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea, for crying out loud. They watched the ocean crash in around their enemies. They'd even been given the promised land. Then they had been given over to their enemies in the days of the judges. And then they were delivered again. Yet another rescue from heaven. God had established the tabernacle amongst them, a sanctuary, and soon would use Solomon to build the temple. But here's the unprecedented thing that God establishes. A shepherd king. A shepherd king. Who, who among them had ever seen a shepherd king before? What does a shepherd king look like in the family of God? Well, maybe it looks like Jesus riding in on the shoulders of millions of children who are like animals of peace marching into the great cities of our land. Our children yesterday showed how tired they are of the injustice. Our children yesterday showed how sick and tired they are of the division. Our children showed yesterday that they're sick of talking heads. They're sick of pundits. They're sick of it. They're sick of it. Our children showed yesterday in that march across this nation that they're ready for a time of unprecedented peace. Amen? Amen. Crosswalk. Could it possibly be that we might learn something from Israel and 
finally prepare ourselves for a new king. God would continue for a while to use the earthly kings to establish a pattern of sovereignty through the Davidic dynasty so that when the Messiah came, those who were paying close attention would be able to know the king. God continues the kingship so that Israel would remember the need for some really smart and basic rules and then remember who the ruler is. And so that they would repent of their sins and so that they would remember that God desires to forgive them for it. But they got to repent first. So do we. And friends, there is no greater expression, no greater, how? No greater. Say, there is no greater expression of forgiveness than Jesus Christ. Amen. And the sovereignty of God's grace and the sovereignty of God's kingdom doesn't stop with David and it doesn't stop with Solomon. It goes on. You know that messy Anic covenant? Great name. God would have a son too, you see. (laughs) To give the people a sense of sovereignty of God's kingdom, the Davidic dynasty would span over 400 years. And ultimately, it would arrive in Jerusalem with the Savior King, with the Shepherd King, arriving on a donkey, an animal of peace. You know, the way that God moved in David, in that little shepherd boy slash psalmist turned king, is the same way that God is still moving in our great nation today. The way that God is moving in our homes and in our young people right now. The way that God moved on the cross of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of that song, Didi, that we've been singing in worship. Let me tell you the lyrics of it. Though the music changes and the songs we sing, we still lift our praises to our loving God and King. Though the music changes and the songs we sing, we still lift our praises to our loving God and King. And then that second verse, oh my gosh, it's perfect for this. Lord, you've been faithful to plant the seeds. And you will be faithful to always send your rain. Man, those seeds and that rain caused some good to sprout yesterday in our young people's hearts. And then... That song says, though the seasons change, your love remains. I will never hear that song again without thinking about this. Because you know what, friends? No one has been more faithful than Jesus Christ. No one. It was Christ who shared our greatest humiliation and yet chose to remain with us. 
and all this wor- all of this, all of this stuff that happened that we've been talking about for weeks now would lead Israel to the recognition of the Messiah, the sovereign king, Jesus Christ. He was the total fulfillment of the redemption that God had planned and set up on the stage back in that Noahic covenant. He was the catalyst for the seed of Abraham and Sarah that would reach the world and reconcile it to God. He was the perfect fulfillment of the law, the standard that was set forth in the Mosaic covenant. That covenant was so that we would know how in 2018 to go and do our mission statement, which is to what? I'm sorry, what? He was the culmination of the succession of the high priests. Fully human, fully divine, and whose body turned to dust on the cross, but then overcame the grave. (laughs) We're going to celebrate that next Sunday. That was succession. And now he is the continuation of God's perfect and sufficient grace, caring for God's family. And that continuation very much involves us. It played out yesterday. It's playing out today right here in this church, the church that Christ formed and the church that Christ loves. And it is very much alive today, singing Hosanna to our King. It's God's sovereignty and God's grace. And we're the recipients. Our hope is in the fact that God's love for us remains. Remains. 